Hello, welcome to We Don't Talk About The Weather, political discussion that from the outside may look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk. Yeah. Let's talk, basically. Yeah. What have you been up to? Two weeks? Um, last two weeks. What have I been doing? I've been planning crimes on my Instagram. <laughs> Did you see that? No. Oh, um, LSE Class War, which is a fake Instagram account, was saying like, Fuck the old bill. Let's smash up her car. Points in for who smashes up the ambassador's car. Oh, for the Israeli ambassador. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, because of course that's what people do is they plan their crimes on their Insta. Um, and it was fake anyway. Yeah, there was so some, there was some like calling I was watching um, a couple of years ago where somebody says, uh, like I was asking this left-wing figure, like... Um, what do you think about propaganda of the deed? Do you think it's necessary? And it's like, excellent. And it's like, no, I don't think it is excellent, officer. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. It's all these fucking people. Um, it's shitty because they don't even, like, cops like that, they don't even have to buy a van. They don't have to grow a beard. They don't have to do anything. They don't have to buy any patches. No effort. <laughs> they don't have to pretend. Low um, effort copping. Yeah. Um, what else happened? Oh, God, that was it. Um, I did see, because we've got Poppy Day tomorrow. Um, oh yes, yeah. The the Royal British Legion have the pull the pin rum, where you it's a bottle of rum. I'm going to show you a picture, and you can pull the pin like a grenade. What? So to celebrate the fallen and okay. give them honour, I am going to at the eleventh hour, the eleventh minute of the eleventh hour of the eleventh eleven. I'm going to pull the pin on this bottle of rum, neck it, and then have explosive diarrhoea in honour of the fallen. <laughs> it's simulating the uh, the German artillery. It is. Um, it's full of honour. But yeah, so, you know, it's Remembrance Day. We've got um, the, the Labour Party going in hard on Tory sleeves. That's really funny, especially with all the stuff that's coming out about Keir Starmer and how the only reason he didn't have a second job was because it was vetoed to like Mi- Corbyn. <laughs> Mishkon Derea, the um, football... The, the, fo- the, the football agents people. You mean the lawyers who were working for the, um, the Labour people in the Panorama documentary... The, the Labour Party was advised that they could win the case, but he gave them he just gave them a big payout. That was, it was them as well. What are you saying? What are you trying to say here? I'm Hugh? saying I'm saying sounds that, very anti-Semitic to me. I'm saying that to say that two things are joined up in a way that <laughs> I actually don't think it is joined up. They're a very big law firm, but well, I'm just saying that I think that um, I think that the that people in power and big companies know full well they don't even have to pay the Labour Party bribes for them to do stuff for them. <laughs> Very because, cheap. Because they'll just do it for them in the hope that they'll get patted on the head at some point. They'll get to meet, like, I don't know, Arsene Wenger. Yeah. <laughs> get a branded just jacket. utterly pathetic. It's just utterly mind-numbing. The so, like, we shit. talked about, obviously, oh. the last episode, it must have been the last episode. We, yeah. Uh, maybe the episode before. Hmm. Um, we talked about kind of the changing conception of the MP. And there's some, I don't know, there's a real strong figure. Maybe this will go away because like mm. expenses scandals and slee scandals, they bubble up and then they go away and either something gets done about them if they reach a critical mass or they don't. And there is something about this one and the, it's the response. It's not, they're not battening down the hatches. They're coming out and justifying their largesse. We'll see. Look. There's a death drive expect, there. If you expect to get the best... And I mean the best. The creme de la creme of MPs. We're talking about... I'm talking to you, Chris bi- Bryant. We're talking about... <laughs> if you're going to get someone like that... Sorry, I thought you were talking about the MPs ordering, ordering top, top service. And I was like, <laughs> the double quarter pounder. <laughs> Not just the quarter pound. You've got two patties in there. <laughs> an extra bacon. They will put that in there if you're an MP. <laughs> they will do that. Um, the West Street special. 
Yeah. Um, but if you're going to get your best, like your Wedge Streetings, <laughs> do you know how hard it is to, to just attract someone who was in student politics to become a politician? <laughs> but so what you need to do is you need to first off you need to you need to sweeten the pot. So we need to triple their wages, obviously. Yeah. Because otherwise, how are you going to stop them from taking bribes unless you pay them over a quarter? <laughs> so yeah, and no, let me go on. Go on, finish. So also, it's very hard being an MP because of your actions and their consequences. So what we need to do is we need to make it illegal to talk to them um, under pain of I don't know extraditing them somewhere. <laughs> um, and we'll make it so they don't have to do constituency surgeries, yep. even though they don't have to. I mean, they, but we'll yeah, stop it. To. We'll stop them from feeling bad about not doing them. Yeah, yeah. And then maybe then we might be able to get someone like a Wheatman, <laughs> maybe a, another Jess Phillips. There was so much stuff that got me so angry this week about the. Do you want them to just have to do jobs, Patreons? The, the second jobs thing because they will because they like, have. Who's the fucking... It's Dan Jarvis, isn't it? Who's the mayor of West Yorkshire? Sheffield? Somewhere like that. He's a mayor and an MP. Like, he's a mayor and an MP. And an action hero. And it's like, okay, fucking Seb Payne, or whoever you are, going on about, well, it's very difficult to categorise... Not that it's very difficult to categorise second jobs. I mean, what counts as a second job? And it's like, it's where they pay you money. (laughs) Fucking mug. (laughs) But there's also this kind of thing where I haven't seen one single pundit actually just stop and take a look and it says, this is fucked, isn't it? <laughs> like, this is completely fucked. That we don't actually know what the duties of an MP are no. and we have a, a, a structure where it's like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, you can be a, a mayor and then have to defend that to the <laughs> hill and defend whether whether that's okay or whether it's not okay. As opposed to, this system is is really bad because it was designed for an aristocratic class of gentlemen. Yeah. I did really like the, how would you define a second job? Because being a minister in cabinet is technically a second job. Uh, that's exactly... Now, now, <laughs> the, what would the same thing be? The same thing there. The same liberal thing, right? Yeah. I'm not even talking like as a socialist or commie here, right? Yeah. If you look at it, the response to that is, well, do you want a system like they have in America where their whole like civil service structure is appointed just by the president on a whim that has its drawbacks and da 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 and you have that whole discussion but no we never get anywhere near that it's just like well it's either this or some kind of mutation of this (laughs) yeah how do they do it in other countries I don't fucking know because no one has said anything about it um, the one it's like um, so we've had like a couple of weeks of like genuinely disgusting actions of these people like we had like David Ames is stabbed immediately people use that as justification for People are mean on me, mean to me on Twitter. I would like them. This is the same. Thing. I would like them yeah. gotten rid of. We have um, I've forgotten his name already. The the guy who started all this saying like these people. Oh, this Owen, witch, Owen Patterson. Yeah, this witch hunt killed my wife. Um, and then um, we get to this point now, and and then you have Ed Davey saying, "Look, my disabled child. Yeah, I need a second job because how am I supposed to look after my disabled child on eighty two thousand pounds a year?" And it's like, yes, I was a member of the coalition. Why do you ask? That reduced benefits in exchange for fucking plastic bag tax. Ah, there's but the whole thing. The whole thing has this vile, disgusting. The whole thing has this real like death drive. Like I, I'm yeah. not going to underestimate the debasement of 
any public discussion about anything anymore because it has no impact. There is no channel for you to have any power over this. Mm-hmm. You can't expect there to be unless Stella's idea of a citizens' assembly comes in. Um, and you have no you have no influence over it. You have no possibility of influence in it. Even in an election, which is supposedly your one time mm-hmm. that you're given, there is there is no path to it. Mm-hmm. The, this system is set up in the way that it is in order to deprive you of that. But if I were an MP and I were kind of operating, let's say they were operating under the old brain rules of how politics works and how mm. this political system works, like, wouldn't you see this stuff as like death drive stuff? This is like, if there's a crisis in the next five years, like there would ever be, if there's a big crisis, you know, some kind of very big disaster, like, not that, not that there's necessarily going to be a big financial crash, a big nuclear accident, something mm. like that, that actually really hits home and has that potential to become the kind of crisis where things change wouldn't you be fucking worried about everything you had said and the opinion people had they don't give a shit Mm -hmm. it's what i was saying before except there's so many more of them when they're questioned like there's um one of them today is saying he needs to be able to do his parliamentary business from the caribbean yeah that's a good one that's uh i can't remember who it is that was today's focus yeah um and it's like, can are you you have you have absolutely no desire for self preservation, do you? This is it. This yeah. is as comfortable as this mm. class is ever going to get because mm. they genuinely believe that anything they do is justified yeah. and will now do it publicly. Mm-hmm. There's no shame there. And that's like fascinating. Mm. That's that's a fucking system dying. That's somebody not believing in even trying to have any hegemonic justification for what you're doing. Mm. They don't care enough to lie. Because they're all telling the truth. <laughs> also, they're not lying. Yeah. None of them are lying. Yeah. And when they stop lying, it means they're not ashamed. Yeah. Incredible scenes. Like it, it is. I want to do maybe sometime in the future, like, yeah, re- revisit the MP thing. Because yeah. like there's something going on here and in America as well mm. of elected representatives who really do not give a shit. Mm-hmm. About whether they're going to get re-elected or not, yeah, or, or at least appearing they're so like that. secure. They're so secure and yeah. so confident that they Ish. don't even have to lie over their vile, disgusting habits. It is terrifying. So anyway, for our main topic this week, it's time to talk about an old empire hidebound by ancient florid traditions, stagnant and incapable of even the minutest change, with guilds of hyper-specialist, specialised technocrats clustered around a centralised but hollow power structure, filled with hereditary psychopaths where the only acceptable politics consists of jealously guarding the accumulated privileges of centuries and sniping pointlessly at your rivals. But enough about the UK! (laughs) No, we're talking about June. Yeah. Um, we went to see uh, the June, the new June film uh, yeah. a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Hugh, what do you think of it? I haven't been in a cinema that wasn't the Prince Charles in a long time, and let me tell you, those fully reclinable chairs were a fucking delight. They really COVID. Nobody has benefited as much from COVID <laughs> as the cinemas. I did really like. It. It was, I'm glad we only had a couple of drinks for him because I would have fallen asleep. <laughs> I nearly did a couple of times. Yeah, it was very nice. <laughs> Um, no, it was a long film. It was a long film. Um, it was fine. You so just a background. This like I have read Dune and enjoyed it over the years. You, I have. Read... I, I wouldn't say a Dune fan. You you are in depth with Dune. Yeah. Um, after Star Wars broke my heart, like a like a number of 
people of my generation who were broke, who had their hearts broken by Star Wars. <laughs> I then moved to Dune, went to the source. <laughs> um, and yeah, I've read all the, all the Dune books, all of them, including the bad ones. All the bad ones. They're... And two of those are Frank Herbert's. <laughs> but, um, like, I've read, I've read all of them, yeah. I've read all of them. I pro- there's probably new ones I haven't read because I don't hate myself enough to read them now. Um, but, yeah, I love, the, I love those books. Those books are fucking excellent. Um, I was not excited about the film. I was expecting it to be shit. It was not. Yeah, I actually really enjoyed it. Um, I thought it looked amazing. Mm, yeah, that's that. To be honest, that's like probably sixty percent of, <laughs> of the of the whole thing of the yeah. film is that it, I really liked how it looked. It looked good. It's obvious Warner Brothers want their Star Wars killer. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, and they've decided to go for the one with you know the sexy battle nuns. <laughs> Rather than um, celibate monks, <laughs> it did remind me of like there was a lot of stuff in it where like because like Denis Villeneuve has his particular style that he Dennis does. I've I've seen like Arrival and Blade Runner, both of which I've seen neither of those were they were very nicely designed and there were bits of all of them that I could take or leave. I actually really liked the design of Blade Runner twenty thirteen forever. Um, the plot was eh, a mm-hmm. bit, a bit. You're doing a sequel to Blade Runner, and yeah. Anyway, but it, like the visual design is is really nice, and yeah. it has that kind of like he has that same kind of transferred thing. And I kept thinking through June, it looks like. Do you remember in about like 2004 or 2006, and Neil Blomkamp did? Um, I think it was Neil Blomkamp did a load of like shorts about yeah. Halo. Yeah. Right, and it was you watched it, and it was like. Um, Almost like real real life footage of like warthogs and jeeps being constructed and mm. weapons being made for the soldiers. Yeah, there was a load of good in the Halo for, game um, for Halo because there was like um the one for it's like in the I don't think Halo it was two. I don't think it was and yeah the, I mean all the adverts for Halo were really good but like the it was a it was I think it was just a short film it yeah. was the idea was like to maybe pique some interest to see if there was any interest yeah. in doing a Halo film but it was like proper like uh, CG in the distance with shimmering kind of heat heat. Mm. coming off of the engines and it all looked very real and to me of whatever age well 20 or 28 depending on however old I was um, it really like it really felt like a kind of like this actually like fulfilled all of that because like mm. you saw those and then you thought in, in 2006 or whenever and you thought oh yeah sci-fi visuals are going to look like this now they're going to be fucking great and then they were and it was terrible <laughs> because all of them looked like it. And, you know, they did yeah. District 9 and Elysium and all those kind of things. And, you know, it just came to kind of be very featureless and kind of be mm. a, a be a like sort of phoned in way mm. of pretending that something was futuristic and yeah. different and alienating enough mm. to you to make you think it wasn't just a normal city or a normal military base or a normal desert or whatever. Mm. But this actually felt like, ah, actually, you did kind of get this right. Yeah, you they, did that, but you did it right. He stuck to... Like how things look, how things are described in the books. He, even the things he changed, he got, he kept the right spirit, which is like a lot of like yeah. Lynch changed yeah. a lot, but kept with a spirit of it's weird. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know they kept the the things like the thing that sticks to me is like possibly the, one of the best looking things was um, highliners just being almost the size of a moon. Yeah, because the, all the, they are is like they're yeah. it's a giant shed in space that gets like teleported essentially. Yeah, 
and they can't they can't really move much. It was all the kind of like Mobius designs mm. of the of the of the ships and of the various mm. bits, and like it, it it is quite like an empty space in all of it, but it did didn't feel like it didn't feel like it usually does with these say, with these like kind of films. One of the you know? criticisms I had with it was how like one of the criticisms is also one of the things I thought was good. On the one hand, like when they're on Arrakis and in Arrakeen, the ta- the city, the capital of Arrakis that they move to, um, it feels empty and echoey like an imperial holding that's been dumped it looked like which a, it should it looked like a fortified outpost in the middle yeah, of but which was heavily populated but then the population left yeah and it feels like that it feels empty and it feels sparse and it feels alienating and horrible but then there's lots of other bits which also felt then quite sparse and like they should have had more people like the thing is this was filmed before rona mm. there was no restrictions on that but <clears> there were restrictions on reshoots so yeah. I, I I'm pretty convinced there weren't he in the when he re, I I'm at, I don't I haven't looked too too far into it because I don't like looking into the making of these things too much, um, but I'm pretty certain knowing what I know about these things is he delivered them a film and they said they wanted more action and that's why some of the action sequences are like three guys in a really open ventilated area, <laughs> and um, but that isn't that can't be justification for why all the fighting looks shit. Yeah, the, yeah, the the fighting wasn't uh, wasn't great. Yet. Like, okay, so in June you've got the weird thing with June, where all fighting is hand to hand fighting because of the fancy shields that if you shoot them with a laser, it causes a big old explosion. Yeah, so almost to, almost nuclear explosion. Yeah. So everyone has to fight with knives, and everyone has to fight in this weird way where you can't. If you go too fast, the shield stops you. So you have to sort of get in and slowly cut them. It's a yeah. very weird thing, and it's stupid. And even though no, I love, I, I really like it. Um, I, I really ah, like that. But it is always, it's always really hard to film. Mm. It mm. never looks good. It always looks kind of shite. Um, and I'm never going to forgive them for shaving um, Jason Momoa's beard and letting me see his chin. <laughs> oh, well, any boy crush I had on Jason Momoa is gone. Oh, gone. God. Oh, I thought this. Now. I thought this would cement it forever. Him being Duncan, <laughs> the sexiest, best swordsman the universe has ever seen, who lives for a billion trillion years, constantly reincarnated to just be a himbo for eternity. And they shaved his beard. It's like, nope, nothing. He looks like an accountant now. Got nothing. I feel nothing. No quiver. It was interesting, because like, as I was going through it, I was trying to think of... Like, I've read the, the first book again relatively recently, mm-hmm. uh, within the last two or three years, I'd say. And... I was going through it and it was like all the stuff with Duncan and all the stuff with the like Atreides household. Mm-hmm. All of these characters that in the book are, if not fleshed out, definitely like interact with each other <laughs> a lot more. They talk to each other like humans. Yeah. Which they don't in the film. And I, I was like, I wasn't sure how much I was enjoying the film as opposed to how much I was like enjoying the accuracy of remembering bits. Mm-hmm. And maybe like overlooking the fact that they don't actually interact that much by plugging that in from yeah. my memory. It was yeah, very weird. A- I 100% think that Dune is a very good film if you are familiar with the book. Because if you came into that cold, I can't see why you would give a shit about any of them. Yeah, it's um, weird. And there would be bits that just feel like... like You can watch what happens with Dr. Yue and his betrayal. And it's just a thing that happens. But in the book, it's a big thing. And it feels like a betrayal. 
It didn't feel it doesn't. I, it's hard to say because I like know it so much, but I didn't feel like it came through in the film. I feel like a lot of the character stuff just didn't come through because there wasn't much character stuff. Yeah, it's it really it really is like the bare minimum. It's like yeah, UA's betrayal is like nothing. It feels like nothing because you've had literally twenty seconds with him. Mm. Um, whereas in the book, there's like all the stuff about imperial conditioning and yeah. how their like doctors specifically are completely broken and brainwashed in mm. order to make sure that they don't assassinate their patients. Yeah. Um, and you know how much the kind of Harkonnen had infiltrated their operation and kind of built plots within plots to make like UA have believe his wife was kidnapped, so therefore he could break his conditioning because he was conditioned to never take a life. Mm. But if he thought another life was in danger, that overrode it and confused it. And there's all this like kind mm. of intricacy. Like there's a whole bit in the um, just before the kind of the turn mm. of Leto's like um, murder, which is. The Harkonnen like sending a letter and everybody thinking that his wife, Jessica, is like a Harkonnen agent and her kind of interacting with mm. these others as they're suspicious of her. And it just builds up that kind of like, um, it just builds up that kind of like, yeah, the, the idea that they are like hyper vigilant to the point of mm. utter paranoia, all of them, even with their, even with their friends. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um... And it's 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 actually kind of like for all the people who say like June is difficult to film. I think that actually might be probably the most difficult bit to film in a blockbuster, not in something like a TV series where it has more time to breathe. The sci-fi you know? series is the best June adaptation. We knew it was coming. Boys. It is. No, it is though. It we is. Knew it was coming, lads. It is. No, like it is though. Um, I'm not gonna. T- I don't need to. I don't need to defend it. Because it's excellent. It defends itself. It does. It, it's, it's just better. There's like a couple of things. That and they, 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 they... Hugh does not take your orders. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, hang on. Hugh does not take your orders. You can't do the hand motions on a podcast. Yeah, you can. They heard it. <laughs> they could hear the air rushing and they knew exactly what I was talking about. Um, yeah, like, there's a couple of things that, you know, they, they do. They, they do really well. Like, they do the... Um, you don't see a guild navigator. You see representatives, but you never see what they look like. Yeah. Um, everything does feel very alien. They, they, they've... Even though it's Dune, they seem to have almost removed the spice which was a weird thing like spice addicts aren't a thing really yeah you don't have a... like mentats have their, their own spice like yeah. all of the like the Benny Jesuits are all blue they're like they're on spice yeah because it's so, it took, so it obviously for people who I mean there's no I, I don't think there's establishing some ground rules for talking about June mm. is that there is literally no point explaining June like, go mm. and look up bits of it but essentially spice which allows people to travel in between planets it no, it allows, allows them um, to see the future. Oh, it Hugh, makes them live longer. Hugh, and if you take enough of it, then you become God. Right. But it's the thing that allows the navigators to navigate between planets. But it also underlines their society, the high level of their society, because this is an aristocratic book. Oh, yes. And definitely reinforced in this. There is literally, like, I mean, there is nobody who isn't um, firmly involved in the kind of aristocratic game and, mm. and uh, the, the kind of sniping, the counter sniping, and, and all that kind of shit. Um, yeah, it is weird thinking about the the Lynch version because I I quite like that film just on its own. Mm. It's fucking like really very campy, which is super fun. Yes, it is. Um, and it's not a terrible version, but it kind of it has to utilize a lot more visual elements to try and make it seem monstrous. Like this mm. is this is probably the least monstrous version of Dune you, mm. you can do because like you've got the three examples which are the the Lynch version which is monstrous because he he makes people monstrous he makes monsters mm. in there he dresses them up like they are monsters 
the Children of June thing, uh, the miniseries, mm-hmm. tries to do that by having everybody look as utterly ridiculous as possible. Like they they all look like stage magicians. That's how they're described in um, the books. We, yeah, they I mean, not. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Are but, you telling me? Are you telling me that given our arist- are the the way aristocrats are in this in our current civilization, give them a few thousand years and giving them a magic drug that's kind of like coke, but it makes you live forever. That they wouldn't wear stupid hats all the fucking time. Do you think spice tastes like cinnamon? It does. It smells like cinnamon. They yeah. literally describe it. It smells thought, like yeah. cinnamon. Hmm. It smells like cinnamon in the desert when there is a spice. Mm. Um, and yeah, this is like the least monstrous. The, the best thing I can say about that kind of stuff is that the film has this, other than the few quips, um, which is between like Gurney Halleck and Duncan Idaho, mm. and the, the most kind of recognisably human characters because they're like retainers. Yeah, they're not aristocrats. They're not aristocrats, exactly. Um, um, Gurdy is just a soldier. He's like a soldier musician. He's a sword master of Guinans who is like, they're, they're sent, you, you, you send off your good guys to the, like, June is full of this shit. So, because of how guild-like everything is, there is the place you send people to learn to be sword fighters. Yeah. And that's where Duncan went to and that's why, even though he barely does that, he's like flying planes and shit. Uh, he's meant to be like just a very good warrior. Oh, he's the I best. think that's fine. He's the best. He's top tier himbo. That's the whole point of him. But yeah, like the the, the alienation and the monstrousness yeah. in this film comes from the fact that you have this kind of separation between the quote unquote normal characters and mm. the Aristos who are actually the stars of it. And you see it when you've got um, Stilgar, when you've mm. got Javier Bardem. And he comes in and it kind of looks like he's almost like phoning it in a little, like phoning his performance in a little bit. Because he's like, comes in, he's like, like, like swaggering in, just talking to him thing, coming closer than two meters. Mm. And uh, you're looking at it, it's like, how dare he? How dare he come that close? Does he not know how dangerous it is? Do you not know not to come within a knife and a half's distance or sword and a half distance yeah. or whatever? Um, and then you're like, oh no, he's actually just behaving normally because he's from a vaguely egalitarian yeah. culture and they're not. They're yeah. completely hidebound, even though they look and like the Atreides are quote unquote the good guys and kind and friendly and all that. It's like they're absolutely not. I mean mm-hmm. no, they're 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 definitely not. No. Even in the book, they're not like that. But like yeah, it's it's They seem that way in comparison to the Hakonan. Yeah, he's That's actually just... having a a, a normal interaction mm-hmm. and they're not. Mm-hmm. Um speaking of Harkonnens, I did really, really like Baron Harkonnen. Oh yeah, he's excellent. Really liked the look of him. Um, yeah. Love the Beast Raban because I love me some Batista. I do love Batista. Wrestling. Um, Never like him wrestling. He looked like Harkonnen looks monstrous, but not maybe quite as homophobia baiting as he is in the novel. Um, yeah. yeah, and in the book, that's and in the uh, Lynch film. Yeah, um, and in the miniseries, there was there was. I, I'm just glad that we've got like a fat villain who mm. they don't try and make like Trump. Yes. It's like this is the least Trump like a fat villain has been in 5 years and mm. I am extremely grateful for that. He's he's calculating. He is like he he is uncouth and does not have manners, but you know, he's he's calculating in the way that you would expect him to be, you know? Yeah. Um, I really liked the bit with the sidecar. I've watched that bit on YouTube. For some reason, there are clips of it up on YouTube. I've watched that several times with the like the throat singing, the throat singing and the, the upside down crucifixion in the rain and scooping up the blood to like bless the soldiers. It's gorgeous. It's how to tell people you're a metaler without saying <laughs> you're a metaler. <laughs> there was one big deviation I noticed actually when I was doing the notes for this. Hmm. Um, 
uh, the Baron Harkonnen in the book, um, when he's talking about how to deal with when they're back in control of Arrakis, yeah. he says like uh, to Raban, squeeze the population, don't exterminate them, don't waste the population, merely drive them into utter submission. Hmm. Now in the film, he simply says like wipe them out. Yeah, which was a kind of weird thing to say because like presumably they need to keep producing spice and they use the Fremen to do it, hmm. or like the domesticated Fremen, whatever they the Fremen of the house. Yeah, the, ones uh, the city dwellers, yeah. the city Arakeen. Sorry, I just looked it up. I knew it was someone like it. The guy who plays Harkonnen in the Children of Dune miniseries is the um, the the town crier. Oh, it's the in town Rome. crier from Rome. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He plays it. Ian McNeese. Ian McNeese. He plays He's in it. A ton of stuff. Mega camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, Carol. Yeah, I mean the things that. I came out of it and like I really I, I felt good. I felt the buzz mm. of it coming out of, of seeing, having seen a good film, mm. and it's like that's actually fairly rare for me now. Yeah, um, films are bad mostly. I don't like a lot of the films I, don't I watch. watch. I only watch. I pretty much only watch like horror films and shit now. So like I always come out feeling good, um, even if they're shit, they're fun. Yeah, um, I but, think they, but it's very possible it, to have those. It nicely because. Um, you see worms at the end to remind oh, you. Oh, the worms. Worm, with the, worm, worm, worm. With the um, sand turning to liquid mm. underneath them was really fucking yeah, good. I like the, really yeah, the nice. quivering and all that kind of stuff. And it, it, feel, it feels, it has, the, it has the proper film of epicness where it needs to yeah. have it, which was always a worry with Dennis Villeneuve because I have a feeling that he, he likes to kind of understate things sometimes. Mm. I feel like yeah, Arrival was a little bit like that. It was, maybe it wasn't working with the same budget, I don't know, but it was a... Uh, there's a lot of there's it's it's this film is definitely of a type of something that I've actually have increasingly grown irritated with in modern sci-fi, which is like I wouldn't say I hated Arrival and Blade Runner, but there's a lot of modern sci-fi with this sense of being so desperate to get a big clunking theme across that they really don't bother with like any messiness. Mm. You know, there's like I'm not asking for like Marvel halting witty mm. witty banter all the time. That's not the remedy that I'm looking for, but in these films, like everyone goes around, says exactly what they want to say. They never make any mistakes. They're heard and understood with perfect clarity. Like half of fucking Shakespeare's plays are about someone mishearing somebody, something that they said when some yeah. man said some dukes they liked them. Hmm. Um, but yeah, everything gets like communicated with perfect clarity and tone and intent, and everyone understands each other. Now, with this, for some reason, I was really forgiving of it because like they inure you into this world where actually. The stakes are so high with everything that they say and do and and perform that they're so controlled and so like diplomatic and, and paranoid. This might be the one piece of fiction that you can get away with having maybe a slightly more stilted like it's character that, interaction. Do you know what I mean? It feels soulless, but no, then the yeah, situation no, feels soulless. Yeah, well, there's like there's no character work. Yeah, it feels like every scene that has people talking to each other. It's the further on plot. Which is what I fucking despise. Yeah, that's like, exactly what yeah, I, that's I exactly hate, what I mean about I a lot it. of modern sci-fi. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's modern sci-fi. It's, it's all sure, things. Sure, sure. All things. Yeah, it drives me insane. I hate it. It's horrible. And I forgave it with this because I think, okay, I could see them squeezing another two films out of the first. Oh, block definitely. Easily. Mm. Um. Oh no, it's got such a natural like where it ended. It so it ends in the middle of the first book, mm -hmm. and it has such an obvious second film coming and such an obvious end mm -hmm. that I feel you could definitely do a third film, probably a fourth film, probably a fourth 
films. I reckon they're going to do one more, maybe two more, and then they're going to go into children. And then yeah. it carries on doing well because they want to. They want to because it's like just why? Why does it exist? Why do they make? Why do they make do now? It's because Warner Brothers wants Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. Warner Brothers need another um, big blockbuster because mm. I mean they've got Matrix, but that's a that's a gamble. Yeah, um, um, and they're they're DC as well, I think as well, and they're yeah. not. It's not not doing so well. But um, it's done well, and I think like I forgave, I'm happy. Yeah, I forgave I'm really a lot happy. of its stuff because like, but because I already know this stuff. Oh, but one thing. Actually, I really thought I, I kind mm. of, I thought it was very funny and kind of epitomizes exactly about the taking out the messiness part. Mm. There's no like June is a book about all kinds of religion. <laughs> it's literally a book where because technology is banned, they've had to human minds have had to turn in on themselves. And when you have to develop the human mind, you have to use something like a religion. So there's like all these compound religions like Zen Sunni wanderers and like. Yeah. The or they all uh, adhere to the Orange Catholic Bible, yeah, or Mahayana Christi- Christianity and stuff like that. There's not one single mention of no. a specific religion. Now, again, they almost get away with it because in the book the religion is very, very cynically used. Yeah, but at the same time, I just like the idea of some like uh, exec at Warner Brothers looking at that, looking at the script with all the religions in and going, "Nope, yep, we are not putting up any notion that these yeah. religions cross uh, out of the word jihad there." Can't have that word. Have they? Used, did they use the word? I can't remember. No, a crusade. No, a crusade. Uh, a flaming religious war. Yeah. <laughs> Just like yeah. Think about how good the box office would have been in Northern Ireland. <laughs> They'd use the Orange Catholic Bible. <laughs> we instilled a deep love of King Billy and the Fremen. How's it doing in Burma? Well, the Zen Sunni and Zen Shia seem to have split along religious lines. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah, I thought. Yeah. No, I thought. I thought it was. It was good. I was happy with it. I I, have, I go into these kind of films with such a low expectation. Yeah. Um, you can't not anymore. I go into every film with such low expectations. Yeah. Um, which will probably be why I, I'll watch Cowboy Bebop and I'll be saying that Cowboy Bebop is fine. Because <laughs> I've got such a low expectation. It's not going to be fine. Um, yeah, it, to be honest, I go into most things, most TV series, and like, how big of a crime is this going to be? How angry am I? Not even against source material anymore because they're remaking fucking everything and I don't give a shit anymore. It's just make something good. I don't even care if you lift everything from from an anime or from a book. Just make it good. I I find the cowardice really tiring now that that everything has to be an already existing property. Oh, it's it's been like... I mean, fucking... That's like a George... uh, What's his face from Bill and Ted, which they also remaked recently. (laughs) Um, From the first Bill and Ted, uh, Rufus... um, Mm. It's like one of his stand-up sets. He was oh, talking it? about that fucking forty years <laughs> ago. Yeah, it's um, it's like one of the reasons why, like, diff- very different things. But one of the reasons I love, love the OA is how different it is and how it isn't mm. from something. But um, Dune's different. You know, make make big films about Dune. You should always make big films about something like Dune. Those are the kind of books that are, like they're made to be attempted to make. Yeah, it's like literally all sci-fi wouldn't exist now if it wasn't for Jodorowsky failing to make Dune it's great <laughs> he so f- badly failed to make Dune that most reviews reference Jodorowsky's Dune as if it was something that was actually made it has I think that's, gone it's sunk, sunk so far it's it sunk out. so far into non-existence yeah. that it actually turned all the way yeah. around well, because the documentary existence. came out and made it, made it really easy for people to talk about it <laughs> yeah so with the release of Dune the film came the kind of inevitable tide of you know 
pointing out several key factors around uh, Dune as a story. I can't believe how they treat the Fremen. Treating the Fremen who are indigenous to this sandy place as if they, you know, they're, they're not from there. So, I think... There's a lot of people like, who haven't read any Dune and haven't spent as much time on Dune Wikipedias. <laughs> there are, so there's, having hot takes and it's made me mad. There's, there's a very kind of predictable round of claims of like reactionary reactionism and colonialism and, you know, white, white saviour tropes and fascistic themes, especially mm. fascistic themes. And the various merits and flaws of Dune have been debated for years, mm. but the books still have tons of left-wing fans. Yep. It's kind of the same as Jonathan Meads. Mm-hmm. Um, Dune was written in 1965, and a lot of sci-fi from that era is kind of pulp and stuff like that. Dune is not pulp. It's much more epic. It's much more mm. myth-making. But I, th- I spend a lot of time over the past few weeks thinking about Dune and its relative merits. So uh, you can definitely overthink Dune, and I'm about to overthink the fuck out of it. Um <laughs> So Dune is set in a kind of feudal mm-hmm. society. It's an intergalactic society, but it's it's feudal. Again, spoilers for the later for the books, but also I'm not going to sit here and explain all of the things I'm talking about. So again, go on to Wikipedia. Um, Dune portrays this very profoundly uh, unequal galactic civilization. Um, the feudal system in in Dune, which is the Imperium. Mm. is like a very, very debased uh, Holy Roman Empire. Um, there's an emperor, there's great noble families with their own like military things. The emperor's kind of appointed by the Landsrad, although he hasn't been appointed in many years mm. because there's one house that has dominated it, like the Holy Roman Empire. There's like separate religious orders and there's guilds who sort of lubricate the whole the whole mm. empire. It's like actually pretty unique or it must have been unique unique at the time and i go on so much about i don't understand why people don't plumb the kind of holy roman empire or Mm. the 30 years war for more kind of like it's always seemed so fictionally rich to me Mm. like the 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 german peasants war and 30 years war and all that kind of thing i've wanted stuff like that for years and this is kind of the probably the most prominent example of that Mm. But what's important for the books, we're talking about the books here, not the film or the TV series or the Lynch film or the, or the games or anything like that. Um, the book has a really good appreciation of the dynamics of actually existing mm. feudal societies, how they existed. Like way too often fictional depictions of this kind of social system show kings whose word is law, who are, you know, God's representative on earth and all that and, you know, everything they have... They have complete control over everything. And that's not the way feudal systems work. Those are the lies those systems told about themselves. Mm. But a feudal system isn't just the domination of one king over everyone else, because that's absolutism. That would, mm. that would come on later when one particular king had like, overcome all their rivals. A Henry VIII, a... Um, uh, shit. Uh, Louis XVI, Louis XV, Louis XVI. Those kind of systems are ones where it becomes kind or of absolutist. Or Paul Atreides. Um, feudalism is a balance of powers even a king in that system has to balance out his interests against those of the aristocracy and in June those great houses seem to be kept in check by warring against each other which is like a divided Actually, Paul doesn't be is an absolutist it's Leo, Leo uh, no no I, I would argue Paul is absolutist Leto is totalitarian yeah because he's literally everywhere he is literally <laughs> the great tyrant <laughs> um, 
So yeah, these great houses kind of war against each other, but it's a very formalised kind of war. They've got a system called Canley, yeah. which is um, formalised vendettas. And it's like, there's actually a similar thing in the Holy Roman Empire, it's called Landsfrieden, hmm. where you had to um, announce vendetta three days before you took any like military action. It's very cool. It's how, I, it's how I moderate all big group chats that I'm in. <laughs> Declaring three-day beef. Yeah. A cessation of three-day beef. I declare beef three days in advance before the beef begins. <laughs> Underlining this um, social system in June is the kind of key facet of how it's developed, which is there's a prohibition on machines that think. Mm-hmm. And this has kind of stagnated technology generally. Sometimes in the sometime in the past, we presume from the original series of books, human society had been more technological and perhaps maybe more capitalistic. So maybe it's a regression from capitalism. Um, and something called the Butlerian Jihad happened, and thinking machines were destroyed and banned. They're mm-hmm. the worst taboo mm-hmm. completely. And you can even tell because while every single like power group in this setting does horrific things absolutely like the worst things you can possibly imagine to each other they will not break this one taboo they mm. will not make create a thinking machine with the exception of the bene Tlaxlu, i think do they right. do, okay. or, or they, they absolutely observe no, there is, they? they all do apart from house x who push at the boundaries of it constantly ah. because they're the ones who originally did it right um, but they're not really in the books. They're sort of mentioned briefly and like in passing in the original books. Mm. They become a big thing in the Rota books. So yeah, it's like we will not talk about the later books. And in the original books, um, it wasn't that robots took over and did like a Terminator thing. It was humans were using robots as tools to oppress people. Right. Okay. Um, whereas I think they changed that in the later books. I can't remember. But that's a fundamental thing of Herbert that um, it's humans. Yeah. And I mean, but like the using uh, Casio watches to. A, Commit genocide. Yeah, yeah. There is a lot of like, oh no, I won't use a calculator, but I will cross blood, like crossbreed bloodlines strictly over tens of thousands of years in oh, order yeah. to create the perfect super being. Oh yeah, there, well, there's like one hundred percent. Like, um, oh no, you can't use a calculator. You can't use a day planner because that might like end civilization. But we're going to break the mind of this person and turn them into a living calculator. <laughs> yeah. So that is the that is the kind of like big difference is that. All of the computing power, all of the information power that we would normally just take for granted, like frankly, even when he was writing this in, what, 65, early 60s, um, stuff that you would take for granted is kind of uh, all turned inward. So in the absence of these thinking machines, you have to turn humans into machines, which is ironic as well, because all of the kind of religion in it all of the like the canley the the vendetta system meant to diffuse tensions mm. and the lack of technology based on the sanctity of human life is always completely abused mm. human life in this book is not worth anything it is like abused and desanctified to the lowest possible degree mm. if 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 you're honest and it's there was a really interesting i saw um megan J, uh sorry megna jayanth um, who wrote uh, 80 Days in Sunless Seas, hmm. uh, like computer game writer. Yeah. Um, and she tweeted about her approach to world building, which was essentially like, in order to build a proper world, you have to find the heart of the systems and ask what are the lies this fictional culture is telling itself? Hmm. What are its delusions? What are its fantasies? What are its repressions and its shadows? And how do they erupt? And this is the huge lie that June's universe tells itself, hmm. which is that everything they do is for the sanctity of human life while creating an utterly miserable hellscape. Um, 
And yeah, this system has existed for, is it 10,000 years in the, at the beginning of June? It's certainly several thousand years. Yeah, it's a very say, long time. Um, without getting into timeline stuff. And it's very kind of, seems very staid and unchanging. And yet nobody actually seems to have a vested interest in keeping up the system itself. Hmm. Every single power group is plotting to either usurp power for itself or change the nature of the power groups. Yeah. You know, Benny Gesserit are trying to. The Benny Gesserit are trying to. Uh, the Benny Gesserit are trying to um, like breed a psychic super trial called the Kwisatz Haderach in order to kind of guide human humanity along the path. But they're essentially doing this like they're doing it for stability, but it would obviously disrupt all of this, mm. the relations that you already have in that society. Um, and yeah, it's very it's very crucial that like this this kind of weakness manifests through all kinds of like background effects like. There's these houses have huge, um, literally propaganda cores hmm. to um, enforce hegemony over the planets that they're ruling over, but nobody believes in any hegemony. Like no. that's a very clear thing. Everybody in the books is very calculating, very cynical. They know the exact limits and me- and can measure their power hmm. exactly, and nobody believes a, a fucking thing. Like no one says Vladimir Harkonnen. I can't believe he did that. <laughs> you know that it's it's utterly utterly cynical. Hmm. And it is very interesting because there are no thinking machines. The the needs of this interstellar empire and the needs of interstellar commerce and, and day-to-day life um, require this substitute to the impetus that technology would provide. And because it goes back into humans, the book actually is really interesting in making that kind of metaphorical leap to lay all of the consequences for the decisions at the feet of humans. Mm. It lays bare the kind of power relations that have little or no way of hiding themselves behind like materials or objects mm. they're all very on the surface because you are hearing all of the characters thoughts and they know everything that they're doing there's yeah. there's no guilt there's no hiding no. place in fact there's actually very few lies that that society is telling itself because yeah. everyone knows it yeah you know um but i think it's a very well realized world and the reason i mentioned the kind of feudalism is because Frank Herbert, it seems very good. There's some quote about, um, there's some quote where uh, Frank Herbert said, when I was quite young, I began to suspect there must be flaws in my sense of reality, but I had been produced to focus on objects, things, and not on systems, processes. And that really comes in. Like for one example, um, we've mentioned before, Dune has personal shields, right? That Mm. negate the use of guns. If you fire a gun at a shield, it explodes and takes out everything in Mm. like three miles or something like that. It's, It's a huge... Um, so warriors fight with knives and darts and swords and, you know, hand-to-hand combat, basically. Um, Now, often a writer, you feel like, would do this for the aesthetic. Mm. You know, close combat is fairer Mm. um, in a certain way. It's probably more exciting to write. There's more risk in it. There's more interesting things to describe. But for June, Herbert describes... Brian... uh, Frank Herbert describes like an entire change in all of the societal arrangements around warfare. So suddenly there are notions of like personal combat and honour. Mm. If you want to be a warrior, you have to train for your entire life, which means you have a warrior elite inside the great houses and as the Sardaukar, which are the mm. emperor's personal troops who are better than anyone in the galaxy, supposedly. The books devote a lot of time to talking about how much effort goes into developing like psychological combat training mm. and even like the language and culture like around combat is very aristocratified. Yeah. You know, it's 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 all elite. There's a whole thing about like killing with the tip of your sword lacks mm. artistry. You know? Um yeah. and you know, you see that echoed in so much of the other social structure because the skills 
needed for this sword fighting are really rare and take a lot of resources, every death is a loss of skills that takes a long time to replace. So wars are expensive mm. and can't go on that long. So they have to legislate for that and have formal vendettas so that wars mm. start when they are yeah. said to have started, when they, are, when they need to. There are presumably less trained soldiers, so they gather around these great houses who can afford to arm their own armies. So that's why you have these individual power centres as opposed to a more kind of mass... Uh, uh, you know, a mass military, a mass yeah. army, and all the forms of social organisation that go along with that. Mm. Um, the only way that the kind of ruling house of the Imperium keeps control is by having a whole planet that's really harsh and just breeds superior soldiers. Um, Ish. They're not that superior. They're um, yeah, decadent they're, and but, lazy. Yeah, there's a slight... That's like one of the first... When, like, when I was reading it as a kid, the first... Fascism alarm went off in my brain. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that in a bit, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, they also say in the book, I think, and in the film as well, that although the emperor has like military supremacy, just if all the other houses united against him, he yeah. wouldn't be able to the stand, way, stand against them. It, they arrange it nicely in that, say, like each of the big houses has a hundred soldiers, mm. he has three hundred. So in theory. No one can beat him unless they all got together, but he can't really bully everyone. Yeah, but that's, I mean, and that's the actual impetus yeah. for the plot of Dune is that they mention, somewhat in passing, that Duke Leto Atreides, who's Paul's father, is very charismatic and has a chance of uniting the other houses against the ruling family, and so that's why the, the, the plot of the book happens. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you have this, like, balance of power of, like, a vague consensus within the ruling class where no one pole has overwhelming access to violence, and so therefore it has to be underpinned by agreements and taboos and conventions and, and things like that. The Emperor, in the first book, has to team up secretly with the Harkonnen to take on the Atreides, and even like Duke Leto, the, the good guy, hmm. he's not the good guy, plans to basically trick the Fremen into being his super soldiers. His desert power, they said that a lot in the film. Desert power, I do, desert I power. kind of like that. Desert power. Well, no, it's... Um, <laughs> okay, one of the things the Atreides had is they had a really good air force. Yes, because that's how they held their previous planet, which, which was Caladan. A load of pretty little islands. Mm. Um, so they made they had like a whole army of decadent flyboys. But I just love this. Like it's fine because in the desert we'll have something equivalent to planes, <laughs> and that is people who live in caves. Yeah. Um, but my point is that, yeah. like, yeah, if you, it's very good at showing that if you change the material conditions around mm. the environment that you're in, that means a change of society and culture all the way up mm. the hierarchy. I think it's it's actually very good at that. It, it demonstrates a better sense than a lot of like sci-fi fantasy world building as to why societies end up like that mm. and it's not spiritual it's not mm. good ideas no one mm. had, it isn't that somebody had the good idea it's no. that somebody had a material edge in interstate competition yeah. or you know so there was some material factor that changed and mm. I, I have always really really liked that um, and yeah I, I only mentioned the, the feudal setting just because I don't think it's that's one of the problematic elements I think it's you know for some reason that's ex acceptable to portray that kind mm. of stuff um, maybe another topic but in looking at how Dune uses its setting as more than just a window dressing or aesthetic is important to understanding and contextualising its actual problematic elements, mm. which I will start with now. <laughs> 
So first off, colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a medieval historian, I think at the University of Leeds, wrote a blog post about just before the film came out about the trailer um, saying, my problem isn't so much with the film, um, it's with the source material. There are two core elements of the book's plot that are troubling. They're a white saviour narrative and a promotion of eugenics. This was um, Paul Sturtevant, a medieval historian. Um, and, you know, you can't sugarcoat it. Look, you can't sugarcoat it. Uh, June uses a bunch of racist and orientalist tropes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the obvious smart-ass response to this is they're in space, no human is actually native mm-hmm. in space, or the Fremen aren't native to Arrakis. Um, and, you know, I get it, but this also sounds a, a little bit like the Irish used to be slaves or the Africans did slaves before the English. Are kind of That kind of gotcha, so I don't think it quite cuts it. Yeah. The Fremen have every hallmark of an indigenous people. They're an ancient culture. They have a, a culture that may be kind of hidden to outsiders but has developed. Uh, the analogy of their condition under oppression is analogous to real-world oppressed peoples i think if it walks like an oppressed duck and talks like an oppressed duck it's probably an oppressed duck mm-hmm. um june has huge amounts of kind of white savior stuff in it um arrakis is presented as outside the caste system um it's presented as a place where a young paul atreides can really find himself and prove himself against the elements mm-hmm. in the way that imperial explorers have done in the past nobody goes there because um, he wants to he wants them strange it's <laughs> literally like the whole yeah actually moment. in the film he 100 percent does and yeah his yeah. whole point is and it's in the books as well like his motivation is he's constantly having dreams about this pretty girl <laughs> but um the description of the fremen and their relationship to arrakis kind of slips into this blending of the mm-hmm. landscape and the people in a way that renders them both backdrops to the white person story paul is the white person if you haven't uh, yeah. realized um, and Arrakis represents, yeah, that's kind of like person, like freedom to mm. the the kind of imperial, the colonial agent that is Paul. Mm. Um, and it's kind of like they talk about Arrakis in the same way Australians talk about Australia, like it, oh, it doesn't have a class system, mate. <laughs> um, that kind of thing. Um, and you know, through the course of the book, Paul learns their ways, but also becomes the best of them, better than any other Fremen, mm. and. The action is all stimulated by like heroic or villainous outsiders. So even the Fremen's eventual decolonization, which does happen, is kind of on terms dictated by oppressive members of the imperial class. So I'm not saying that that's not realistic either, because that is actually can be actually fairly realistic depending on it. But the central conflict of the novel is set up and fulfilled on imperialist terms. There's mm. nothing denying that and i don't think you know saying this is not just a thought experiment i think fiction like this that takes these tropes uncritically and and replicates them mainly for 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 like global north audiences Mm. does reinforce the idea that people on that that people in the global south and and colonized people decolonized people are not capable of ruling their own Mm -hmm. policy polities and and are not capable of the same level of Humanity, mm. as, other, as as you know, their previous imperialist yeah. overlords. Um, I, I do think that conditions you to think in a certain way. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's worth exploring the intricacies of the exact terms of what is presented in the book, right? Because mm. June does subvert this. It's not. I don't think it's a simple white savior story. I don't think it's a simple colonialist story. Well, he's not a savior. <laughs> um, for a I, start. Well, okay. For a start, the Fremen. 
yeah. on their own terms are not presented as inert and passive. No. Um, you can fall into the kind of noble savage archetype in that they have more kind of uh, positive virtues than their imperialist overlords without actually kind of accepting that they have the ability to do things for themselves. I think that does happen. Um, the Fremen on their own have been storing vast amounts of water with this idea of terraforming Arrakis. That's because of... That, but the thing is, even then, um, that's because of an outsider. That's because of Keynes. It's not just because of kinds, because they've been storing it for, for thousands of oh, years, they, haven't they, they? They store it, but they don't know what to do with it. Well, they don't know what to do with it. Yeah, yeah, that's and true. Then, and, then a guy um, turns, and then a guy turns up, or in the film now, um, a woman turns up, who's like, we'll plant it. But what I'm saying is, I don't think, in the book, they're not, kind of, they are waiting for a kind of religious prophet, a religious saviour, yeah, like a messiah. That's been planted in them. Um, that's been planted in them. Um, but I also don't think we're waiting for, the, like they're saying, we're waiting for this guy to unleash all this water and terraform Arrakis. I do think there's the Mahdi. there's a yeah the Mahdi, yeah. <laughs> um, and apparently they do. Um, of course, I forgot this bit from the book until I was doing my notes. But they do actually pay the Spacing Guild to um, make sure there are no satellites above that yeah, part of no the planet, so that they well, no they can't be monitored over. of what they're doing. There's no satellites over all of it. Because that's why that's one of the reasons why um, they send the Atreides there to kill them, because you can do that. Yeah, but they but the yeah. fr- the, fr- the Fremen are paying. Mm. The, what I'm saying is the Fremen have a stake in this yes, imperial system that is slightly complicated. Obviously, it's the they're not native to Arrakis. Yeah, but it, it's slightly complicated by the fact that they are a, a they are somewhat involved in this imperial yeah. system. And they have, sell spice as well. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I would say on the face of it, like the book does have certain positive portrayals of like anti-colonial struggle, mm-hmm. specifically at the bit of the first book and nowhere else, pretty much. But um, um, in God Emperor, yes, yeah, very much so. Um, and they turn on Paul eventually, or some Fremen turn on Paul, don't they? Because um, they yeah, say they that he's betraying him. them. Yeah. Well, yeah, because he's um, he's fucking up. Because he is literally fucking up. Yeah. Um, and you know, if you compare them to the kind of the nobility, the nobility have all these like specialized skills, and they all seem to be focused on defense against their rivals and mm. not against the threat from below. Mm. Which you know it just points out that little bit of fragility that anti-colonial struggles can kind of come through. Mm. Again, I'm not; it's not a guidebook, but yeah. I think you do have to hang on to those bits and, and actually see those bits for what they are, mm. which is your generalized sympathy is with the Fremen. Yeah. Um, it doesn't take away from the oppression, but I think it is like it's probably a slight modification on the usual terms of of, of Orientalism and, mm. and that that kind of thing. Mm. You know, it's I think it's worth noting. Um, and you know, in the book, it, it it is not a modification to say that Paul and the Atreides are as bad as any of the other Imperials. Yes. Um, this is clearly flagged um, even before his like Paul becomes their savior. Well, yeah, even then he'd like the closest he has to being good is he's a coward and yeah. doesn't go through with the visions of the future that he has yeah he chickens out so he doesn't cause as many atrocities as his son and also like yeah and also there's no hint of the idea that he's been like orwell did this in um in one of his books but there's a this idea that uh, i guess heart of darkness is the most mm. is the most famous it's like the idea that when you come into contact with the other you somehow become mm. barbarized oh yeah they don't do that by it. they do not do that at all in, in no, thing. They, the barbarism they, comes from the imperial oh, yeah. side hi- itself they they keep up with that nicely even with um like what happens with leto and god emperor and him him literally becoming a monster of the desert mm. 
even then, the reason he's so monstrous is nothing to do with that stuff. Yeah. It's like, at all. No. And, you know, as far as anti-imperialism goes, mm. I mean, Paul, look, spoilers, Paul becomes emperor and it's the worst decision he could have possibly made. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul becomes the imperial master at the end of the first book. Um, more so than any previous emperor. I think he becomes the absolutist ruler. Yeah, he goes on a, yeah, he goes on a jihad. He goes on a, on a jihad. And he's got like, he's not just got kind of ultimate political and coercive power. He's got like power of like time and the environment. Yes. He has been bred for to have dominion over more things as a sovereign he is closer to godlike than mm. any previous any previous emperor and yet it is constantly highlighted how this gives him less freedom mm. and not more oh yeah he's he's trapped by um, his visions paul is an agent of colonialism and the bad end that he comes to suggests that the more emperor he becomes the more embedded in the imperial system he becomes mm. just as he's trapped by his visions of the future that he can't escape these futures where he kills 60 billion people He's trapped by an imperial system that does not lead to progress and emancipation just because it's got a good guy emperor. It is, by its very nature, it inevitably breeds oppression. Mm. It's not its intentions. It's not its, you know, uh, anything to do with how you think an empire should be run. It's its very existence, the very processes mm. of its operation make it evil. It would not be the empire without being evil, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, and it's not... And also, like, Paul is prescient. Mm -hmm. When he's emperor, none of these bad things are by accident. Mm -hmm. It's not incidental to Mm -hmm. the running of an empire. It's absolutely inherent. Um, By the end of his journey later in the books, um, Paul becomes blind and follows the Fremen law that blind people have to offer themselves up to death to the sandworms if they aren't, so they aren't a burden on the tribe, burden on the siege. And yeah, what this ends up showing is that he can't un-emperor except by walking into the desert and merging mm. back into the land and becoming the colonised subject. You have yeah. to make those choices. He Only when he fully gives up his imperial identity and embraces a non-imperial identity is he actually free from the operation mm. of that empire. Like You have to dissolve the frontier. There cannot be this constant like border. There cannot be this separation mm. while that empire exists. Yeah. I mean, obviously, he doesn't actually disappear. He comes back later, but for our purposes, yeah. he runs into, he walks into the desert, becomes a true Fremen mm. by adhering completely to their law, and kind of goes away. And I think, yeah, like Dune does deconstruct Paul as a kind of imperialist figure who knows that both the colon, who knows both the colonized and the colonizer better than they know themselves. Who, to an extent, like I say, even masters like time, space, and mm. the environment. And in the end, is still unable to affect the fundamental conditions of colonialism, the fundamental mm. processes of colonialism and imperialism, while that system remains. Which is quite the claim for the power of and, and badness of imperial domination. I yes. think if you Very read into so. it that way. Um, and I mean, even like even in the rest of the books, again, spoilers. But so eventually, I think in the books, the Fremen are made almost extinct because they do succeed in uh, Leto or Paul I think succeeds in terraforming Paul starts, Arrakis Paul starts to make the desert bloom yeah and he starts the process but Leto finishes it not Leto as in human Leto Leto when he becomes a worm his son yeah his son when he yeah. becomes a giant worm Leto the second becomes, becomes a big worm he's a big old worm but he's got a human head and little arms like a T-Rex <laughs> And he turns the entire planet into a beautiful, lush wonderland, except for one small bit of desert, so he can make all the spice on his own 
and yeah. control completely the amount of spice. And he has, like, um, they call them museum Fremen. Yeah, I was All about... the Fremen die out apart from one small tribe which he has been carefully breeding. Yeah, it's exactly what... Watching over them like um, like someone playing a turn-based strategy game. <laughs> it's exactly like, yeah, he his attempts to improve their lives through imperial through imperial processes end up with extinguishing them mm. ex- making them extinct and there's museum fremen mm. left that bear their cult they're the only ones that are left that bear their culture now it's not exactly enthusiastic positive anti-colonial reading but i'll be fucked if that's not an accurate representation mm. of real world imperialism yeah you know yeah i mean by comparison if you think about like if you think about representations of reality in other books, like, I mean, Starship Troopers by um, Robert Heinlein. Mm-hmm. Terrible book. Mm-hmm. I fucking hate it so much. I think it's a bad read as oh, well. Oh, he's a terrible writer. Um, it's, it's, it is funny in places, um, but it's a terrible book. Um, so in that, I think in that book, like, the, 20th, the, the Western democracies of the 20th century are meant to have collapsed because of juvenile delinquency. <laughs> which is like oh yeah the US security state got brought low by graffiti and drag races at red traffic lights you know what I mean yeah. that that the amount of thought that goes into Dune even if it does yeah. have these 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 old tropes is, mm. is I think really interesting and worth not just writing it off yeah. you know um, the other side obviously that uh, uh, Dune gets accused of is being fascist mm-hmm. um, and you know, there. Are, I think there are two ways of looking at it. One is the kind of fascistic elements in the book itself, and the other is the appeal to mm. the fascists. Mm. It has to fascists. Um, the modern far right and the alt right kind of really do have this focus on sci-fi and genre fiction. Now, whether that's a, a social process that has made the kind of category of nerd um, mm. something more, especially when it's male, uh, has become more contentious and more like politically codified if if you're you were of that in the 80s and 90s or whether it's just it is the only arena that kind of allows them to fully express genocidal or or Mm. inegalitarian worlds in a way that they can work through um you can see it i mean fucking all the stuff around the hugo awards Mm. you know that that it there's a focus on sci-fi and fantasy in a way that uh yeah they were very very angry with um nk jenison winning twice um richard spencer even spent like a whole i think it was like a three-hour podcast dissecting um why june appeals to white nationalists Mm. richard spencer the white nationalist of Mm. course um and compared it to various other books including um there's a book called archaeo futurism which seems to be quite popular it's it's just another fucking turner diaries Mm. it's like genociding half the planet in order to have a cast of of kings, philosopher kings, who are all white, and a cast of farmers, and a cast of traders, and it's like, um, yeah. you know, it's it's that shit. Um, I think, like June, I never. June does have its big old fascisms. Hmm. It's not like Ender's Game. Yeah, it's not like the Ender's Saga stuff. Hmm. And I've that never, is, you know, I've never that read that. Um, it's the first one is a good book. It's hmm. a good book fascist as fuck um and he is yeah he's he's a complete like the guy who wrote ender's game uh, yeah. what's his name um um Orson scott card he's like a proper yeah he is a nazi <laughs> um i don't think he'd use that word but he is um 
I yeah, he's portraying a there's a, he's portraying a fascist society. There are like a load of um, bits where he's so you see that that's his the... conceits of like Sardaukar are strong. Why are they strong? Because planet is rainy. Um, <laughs> Sardaukar aren't as strong as the other ones. Why? Because they have grown decadent and lazy. They are weaker than Fremen because desert is hardy and mean. At least you can drink the rain. You can't drink the spice. Wait, you can eat the spice. Damn it! They do eat spice and they have plenty of water. That's the thing. They, they, like it's one of the things. Like oh, that's the thing I didn't get in the film. Like there's a bit where they water us up, up some trees, um, but you don't. I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's just because it's better in the books. It goes on for longer. But the feeling of being thirsty and the, and how desperate water is there. Mm. I don't think that came across that much in the film. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think know how you make that in a film, like make people feel thirsty. Well, that also can come later as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think like yeah, June does have a bunch of of fascist themes. I, I'm I, I would stop short of calling it a a fascist world though, mainly mm. because I'm very particular about my definitions mm. Mm-hmm. Um, of of fascist, and I think it's you know it is a feudal society oh, yeah. and it is an slash an absolutist society and all that kind of thing. You can't escape the themes though. Certainly, mm. um, I mean it, it. You know, because of there's no technology, they have to kind of separate and segment humanity into several different, almost subspecies, mm-hmm. because of the hyper specialization needed to sustain this empire. Um, it has, you know, a lot of stuff about genetics and mm-hmm. destinies forged by bloodlines and breeding. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a quote from uh, the Bene Gesserit saying. Um, Oh, you know, uh, the original Bene Gesserit school was directed by those who saw the need for a thread of continuity in human affairs. They saw there could be no such continuity without separating human stock from animal stock for breeding purposes. Um, there is that breeding to maintain societal continuity. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah, fascist. The whole, yeah. the whole point of the pain box and the le- and the, the test at the beginning is to prove that the difference between a human and a beast. Which, so yeah, I, I'm not I, sure if I agree with the definition of a. <laughs> what is what makes a human? So I definitely get where they're where they're where they're going with it because like the the on the surface it's like a human thinks an animal reacts. Mm-hmm. That's basically the, the the test that they put mm-hmm. Paul through at the beginning. And on the surface, this is a clear dividing line between you know human and subhuman. Mm-hmm. Let's face it; it's not animal. They mean lesser races. They mean lesser lesser. They mean lesser. Yeah. Whatever is lesser, whatever dividing line you want to put on that, that's what they mean. But essentially, like it's it's a dividing line between the idea that human is um, in it for the species, mm. and a subhuman would just be in an individual, a selfish, and only thinking of themselves, and only have limited mm. vision, and that kind of thing. So far, so fascist. But there is a bit in that that I was thinking about, of like there's a kind of rationalist, conscious element to it, and there is this big like dichotomy in June between conscious and unconscious mm. you know if you're unconscious you're going through and not thinking about things you're just doing things and blah, blah, blah. and if you're conscious you are planning scheming calculating because there are no calculating machines you have to be a calculating human and you have to be better than mm. that practically a computer yourself um and like I was thinking like yeah fascists despise calculation they despise rationality mm. like it's Probably one of the reason, like that, they attach themselves to Paul's journey. If they do, is that eventually he becomes the dictator, the disciplined, perfect being, and has prescience. And what prescience does is it suppresses the gap between will and action. Mm. If you can see everything and you know see everything happening in advance and see all the different branching paths, 
you don't have to think about the things you're doing because you already know what you've done. You yeah. already know what you're going to do. You're doing it by reflex, mm. which eliminates the period of time when you're consciously considering options, which mm. is, that's the that's why fascists know that they appreciate, they like action. They don't like thinking about it mm. because that's, that's decadent. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's just a very odd, it's a very odd thing that I don't think fully kind of chimes with, um, uh, like just purely reading that as a fascist reading mm. of that. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I, um, I mean, obviously, yeah, there's the stuff about, yeah, environment conditioning response, mm. which I've always thought is really weird. Like, so yeah, you say the Sardaukar and the Fremen are considered like the best warriors mm. because they come from a really harsh environment. The idea being that humans that have to face adversity every day would naturally, again, it's the fascist mm. thing of they would naturally it would quicken their reactions towards yeah. danger. They would become mm. better because they would not think about it because they couldn't think about it because if they did, they'd be dead. Mm. It's a very natural selection-y kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Except that's not how fucking natural selection works, right? It channels into this old myth about Aryans being from the mm. frozen north and having more adversity than yeah. like the decadent southern peoples who just had like dates coming from, <laughs> and yeah. I said dates specifically, yeah. dates you know, just growing yeah. everywhere in coconuts and, and whatever. Um, and I've been thinking about this, like, yeah, if it was so harsh that you can barely survive, wouldn't the actual evolutionary outcome be that you were, like, the best at hiding or mm. the most cowardly? Like, it's not like you look at the desert and go, ah, yes, the kangaroo rat, nature's greatest warrior. <laughs> it's like, uh, that's not how the desert works. No. <laughs> like, um, and yeah, all of that stuff is like the equivalent, thinking that kind of thing is like the equivalent of your, you know, your dad's best mate going, oh yeah, no, I'm a man of peace, right? Plonk me in the desert, I'll go fucking aggro on you. Oh, you ain't even seen it. You ain't even seen it. I'll keep it, I'll keep it very buried down inside. But I'll tell you what, put me in the middle of the desert on a load of space cocaine and I will kill you. <laughs> so yeah, there's a, there's a kind of um, leader... Führer principle mm. in the books as well. Um, the, the ruling classes do have a certain like mastery over skills that kind of prove like justify their rule. Mm -hmm. They've hoarded it for themselves, but yeah. the pressures of that society require you to be so highly advanced in the particular thing that you're doing that mm -hmm. you know they have privileged access to all of this, all of this kind of thing. Yeah. There's also the notion in the book that like a dictatorship is necessary to kind of future proof humankind uh that doesn't really get get questioned um that said again it's sort of undermined by the fact that june really really undercuts the notion of kind of this perfect leader the the quizat sadrach or yeah. you know the prescient emperor or whatever you want to call him um i'm choosing to ignore god emperor of june uh, in which his son takes over as a giant worm god who's like perfect but also completely totalitarian and oppressive he's a monster everyone hates him not only is it it's a hot, it's whole own thing <laughs> we're probably not going to do another june episode no. but also uh, it is really inconvenient to my point at this very <laughs> this very moment so we're going to ignore it yeah paul as emperor is constantly balancing as fascism does this line between um, consciously creating like a disciplined leader, which requires rationality. Mm -hmm. The planning, the fascist planning to take power is required to use calculation and rationality and not what they believe are the essential virtues. But at the same time, 
that leader is also supposed to be like this wild source of like energy that breathes and, and forces vitality into a decadent society. Mm. They're supposed to be controlled and measured and disciplined, but also wild and free and energetic. Um, it's a distinction that um, Nietzsche makes when he's talking about will to power, mm. which is important concept in fascism which between uh, craft strength meaning like primordial strength and energy and macht power which is more about using that strength in order to overcome yourself and channel it to make something as like a creative power hmm. so if anything like it's it's kind of the most fascist element is, is i don't think any of the any single other element other than the bene gesserit because they're the ones who are seeking to kind of shortcut the whole thing by producing the perfect leader that will be able to take these decisions like mm-hmm. i don't think anyone else is particularly like planning for that they're, they're they're still working within the kind of feudal system where there's a balance of powers and they are preparing for that balance yeah. whereas the Benny gesserit are looking to the next end game yeah the fascist the full fascist society to lexu as well but they're not really big they're, big. they're, they're, yeah. they're more just being pricks in the original books and it's odd because like Maybe if you look at it really... that yeah. monster breeding weirdos if you look at it that way it's like yeah i don't think the fash really like the kind of unhinged female calculating shadowy space nuns yes you know what i mean it's like it's it's an it's an odd kind of it's an odd kind of fit for it to fit neatly into a definition of fascism mm. that would be appealing to fascists because the yeah. other thing is like i don't think june's very appealing as a place you'd want to live in. Now, right. I know there's a certain masochism in a lot of fascist fiction. Like, the Turner Diaries mm-hmm. is a fucking horrible nightmare. Mm. I don't need to tell. Even, like, reading it is physically, <laughs> viscerally unpleasant. Yes. I haven't read it. I've read bits. But the whole thing is, is just horrific. Does not seem like a thing. But there are also people who are like, yeah, I want to do that. Because you have the kind of white male demographic, 18 to yeah. 38 or whatever who do not, in a capitalist society, feel that they have been fully tested, Mm. even with the privilege that they have, have not fully been tested and therefore invent fictional realities, harsh realities, to test themselves against and imagine themselves living in and enacting perfection or whatever, you know, whatever you you see. I, I still can't, like Starship Troopers even, which is another work that's like, I've referenced already and has kind of comes up as like, is is prefigured as like very fascist Hmm. has a kind of like visceral thrill to it um marvel movies are very entertaining as fascist products um but yeah there's there's nothing appealing there's no i don't see anything in june that a fascist could easily slot themselves into and imagine ah yes this is the way especially as the most fascist element of it the breeding Mm. and the 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 perfect leader is entirely engineered around women it's entirely engineered by women yeah you know it's a, it's a it's an odd one. I, I think it's like I've gone back and forth on like exactly where what I think about June about whether it's fascist. And it's like I think the best description I can come up with is it doesn't depict a fascist society, but it does depict a, a feudal society with fascistic forces lurking in it. Yes, and it's very difficult because I'm very particular about my about my definitions of fascism and. and it's a difficult question because by necessity fascism is a reaction to industrial society mm. you could argue maybe like the counter-reformation in the middle mm. ages it, the 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 kind of push of the catholic church against protestantism the culture war the actual war you can probably make an argument for if that's maybe proto-fascist the kind of reactionary okay. counter-revolution but ultimately 
modern fascism's emphasis on anti-plurality, on the corruption of kind of pureness, uh, against machine-like thinking, as mm-hmm. they would put it. That's all a response to industrial capitalism. And to an extent, all those things do feature in Dune. But with Dune, you, it's not an industrial society. It only has the barest echo of that mm. in the fact that we see them harvesting spice. Mm. You know, there are no masses in Dune. There's no. no proletariat in Dune. The closest, the closest you get is probably the Fremen, and they have other kind of categorizations that probably come closer to it. Like, it's an, an, an a, it, they're farming, they're mining. Yeah. You know, it's it's not quite the same organize like social organization as would happen in in kind of modern industrial capitalism. Mm. And a definition of fascism is hugely hugely dependent on the relationship of the masses to to a society. You know, fascism is an elitist politics, but only comes about in response to the politics of and movement of a large amount of people. Mm. That's why it's got its racism. The free movement in, an industri- in a capitalist society, fascism is a reaction against that. You know, it, uh, the actual mass politics of, of communism and socialism, it's mm. a reaction against that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I guess you do have a kind of the masses, but only kind of referred to as like the human species. Mm. Like that's the closest you get to a kind of political, like con- politically conscious collective. Mm. If you're meant- and it's really not emphasised in the book, the human species, even given the fact that it's undifferentiated and there's no other mm. to the human species. It's just not talked about enough. And mm. I don't think that's enough for you to necessarily compare the society of June to something like historic fascism, mm. you know. So yeah, I, I mentioned uh, to finish up. I mentioned Paul Sturtevant uh, earlier, mm. um, and he was the one who introduced the colonialism bit, and it's a how it's a problem has problematic elements. The full title of that piece uh, went, "Maybe Dune: A Story About a White Superman Created by a Eugenics Program Is Not the Film We Need Right Now." Considering the ongoing crisis of police brutality that spurred the uprising for black lives and the recent damning accusations that the United States may be practicing eugenics by forcing sterilizations on migrant women, maybe, just maybe, this is not the fucking time. Now, I don't really understand when people say that this is not the time. Like, Mm. aside from the fact that for the media entertainment complex, all the time is the right fucking time. There is is no judgment, absolutely no judgment Mm. on, on that at all from their point of view. But it does kind of suggest that exposure to certain media is itself an impetus or an excuse for the far right, or it makes yeah. things worse. And like, I think the ultimate question when you're when you're kind of weighing up the like merits and flaws of Dune is 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 Dune this? Mm. Is it fascist? Is it colonialist? And I, I I honestly think it's not, and it's worth reading because it can actually be useful to the left. Yeah. So I just really like the idea of um, some. 15-year-old fascist watching Dune, getting really into it and starting work on his Benny Gesserit breeding programme, breeding together the noble houses of Europe to come up with a new Habsburg that can see the future while feeding them huge amounts of cocaine the entire time. It's never going to go wrong. We never should have let them see Dune. (laughs) You can never get to the nose because of the Habsburg jaw, the massive giant jaw. His nostrils aren't strong enough. We need to breed stronger nostrils in the next generation. Um, I think June is actually really useful to mm. to read because it has actually a very good um, 
it's it's very good training for ways to think about specifically power. Hmm. Um, and I know this is going to sound quite fashion itself, but mm-hmm. hear me out. Fascists reify and worship power as an end in itself. Mm-hmm. But an inherent part of fascism is that they mystify it. Mm-hmm. The white race isn't powerful because of history or because of actions. It's powerful because of blood science or blood magic, depending mm-hmm. on your flavour or mood. Um, and Dune doesn't do this. Like I don't think it mystifies power. I think it, it, it right. to a large extent, lays it a lot more, more, more bare. Um, we always mention on here about how hegemonic liberalism has a real problem with the notion of power, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's so common, it's a cliche. But this is something of a passive approach because this situates the speaker of that, that bromide as an outside observer of that corrupted power being used on someone else. Mm. and Or, you know, it's spoken as a victim of mm. that kind of absolute power. It doesn't account for the speaker having power Instead of observing the flows and dynamics of how that power is used, how it shifts in social settings and how it's underlined, it pictures power as fixed and unchangeable and not to be engaged with. That's mm. the important thing. You're not supposed to engage with it. And I know uh, Frank Herbert said a lot about power and how he wanted to, like, superheroes are not an idea. I think it's like superheroes are not the goal. Superheroes are not an idea, a, a thing to be wanted, mm. basically. With um, a health warning on... Um, charismatic leaders. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Without actually kind of engaging with the fact that these things still happen. And it is a it is a pure liberal thing that you have the ability and the class background to be able to disengage from those mm. questions. Like, do you think your politics, whatever it is, happens without power? If you're a liberal, if you're a conservative, if you're a socialist, your politics doesn't get enacted without at least having an appreciation of, of those kind of mm. questions of how you engage with it. The narrative of Dune does resent power, as Frank Herbert says, but it doesn't refuse its existence. Mm. It doesn't put on blinders and pretend that if Paul had simply been nicer, then everything would have turned out all right. It takes a proper accounting of who has power and how those people develop philosophies and privileges around their use of it. All right, And it's least worth at least engaging with it. There's always something of a dismissive tone when someone says, like, uh, mm. white savior complex, colonialism, and, and, and doesn't really explore the actual dynamics of how that works. Because in order to know something, you have to topple it. He mm. who has the power to destroy a thing owns a thing. Yeah, You know, you, you have to know those things in order to, to, to destroy it. Mm. Um, and I think, like, Dune is, is still very relevant today just because, especially with its focus on technology, which to me is like it's the most potent modern mystification of power mm. is behind technology can't find a job here's this app got a rapidly heating climate don't worry we'll just uh, tech our way out of it yeah we've got a food crisis oh don't worry somebody's making grass that you can eat yeah and that's always the answer all of our future is is tech mm. that is how they mystify the power behind those decisions that, that get made. You know, there's no history, there's no process. The choices will be made by the blind idiot Forge God because we sure as hell don't want to make them, mm. you know? Um, in the, There's a Marx quote on one of the bits that uh, Marx left, of the Grundrisse that Marx left hanging on the old court board. Um, it's called The Fragment on Machines, and he says, it's quite famous, but he says, technology re- reveals the active relation of man to nature, the direct process of the production of his life, the process of the production of the social relations of his life, and of the mental conceptions that flow from those relations. Basically, that humans make machines that their conditions require them to, and then in turn, those machines condition our brains to think in a way more amenable to their greater implementation. Yeah. By making the only machines available 
In Dune, by making the only machines available, those that are focused on human bodies and brains, Dune cuts out, metaphorically perhaps, one of the mystifying elements of technology, which is the objects themselves, the machines. Mm. It forces us to reckon with the processes behind technological change, which comes from the humans. It doesn't come from the objects, it comes from the humans. By forcing the thing that changes to be human capability, Dune brings it all closer to home without the alienating effect of, well, I mean, aliens, (laughs) robots or warp engines or replicators or, or whatever. It's just us. Now, there are magic psychics thrown in, but, you know, it is just us. Um, one more Marx quote, I swear. Marx argues again in the, in the Poverty of Philosophy that uh, it's the bad side that produces the movement which makes history. You know history moves by its bad side is the, is the like, thing. Um, the bad side produces the struggle and that brings out the antagonisms, the drawbacks of a society which grow until the material conditions for its emancipation have attained full maturity. Which means that without a struggle, you will never be able to overcome the bad things of history so actually advancing the bad side of history is itself progress and i think like something as bad as june like something as horrible and repressive as june's universe just goes to show that those societal relations are not eternal laws they are understandable Hmm. you know you can you can see the process that created something that horrible and you can sort of see through paul's struggles a way of overcoming them Hmm. um for all of the basic bitch power corrupts readings of Dune, that's what I've always got from it, which is a change in how a society produces things necessarily brings a change in human relations and, and human nature. And I was thinking of our review, or our review, our retrospective on Sid Meier's Alpha Centauri, because mm. um, that has another similar thing in that it doesn't accept that human nature is fixed or restricted. We're not passive observers to human nature as we are to power, that we are not able to change it it's not an excuse for falling back on nihilism Hmm. Um, humans are capable of imagining and realizing way more utopia and dystopia than reactionaries or fascists could ever comprehend june shows firsthand how human societies are almost infinitely malleable despite showing this rigid crusty exterior he shows how malleable and manipulable certain elements of those societies can be and how fragile they are and you know we are going to have to um wrestle with that in the coming future you know it's uh i mean i fuck it if you give it a couple of centuries the policy exchange are going to have a breeding program to introduce the ideal lazy middle-aged pundit who can see cancellations before they happen <laughs> so it helps us to think about these things Okay, that's us for this week. You can follow us at WDTATW underscore podcast. Follow me at BM Bergamo. Follow Hugh at Struggle Ruffian. Are you uh, streaming this week, Hugh? Um, I might be streaming on Friday. I'm not sure. It Friday? Depends, what time? Um, five till eight. Five till yeah. late, question mark? Eight, because that's when Bobby streams. Ah, right, okay. Um, and Mondays... That's Bobby, on... that's uh, at Nervous on Twitch. You should yeah. uh, join him as yes, well he's very on Friday good. evening. Um, but it's, like, it's hard to find time. I'm having so much fucking bullshit family shit. Yeah. Boring, boring, boring. It's well, not, if they want to... bullshit if, family if they, shit, it's me being a good dad. So it's not that bad. But yeah. If people want if to I follow stream, you. Follow me on Str- uh, Struggle Ruffian on Twitter and Struggle Ruffian on Twitch. Twitch.tv slash Struggle Ruffian. That's the one. Yeah. And yeah, we will see you soon. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Fighting am the least.
about the Friday game. 